This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of October 10th, 2022, here are some top stories. Arizona's attorney general represents state agencies in lawsuits, offers legal opinions to state lawmakers, and can also pursue lawsuits against the federal government. Arizonans will soon have a new AG for the first time in eight years. And the candidate voters choose in November will face issues related to consumer rights, border security, and abortion. Catherine Davis-Young has more. When the current Attorney General, Republican Mark Brnovich, took office in 2015, he had more than a decade of experience with the offices of Attorney General and Maricopa County Attorney, in addition to years spent serving as a U.S. District Attorney. Either of the candidates running to replace him would bring a much different background to the post. Republican Abe Homiday is an Army Reserve officer and former County Attorney's Office prosecutor. Democrat Chris Mays is a former Arizona Corporation Commissioner and journalist. In debates, each has accused the other of not having enough experience for the role. It seems like every single question you're mistaken on the role of attorney general. Sorry that you're confused about the Arizona Constitution, Abe. I know you only graduated from law school a few years ago. Hamaday, who's 31, is the youngest statewide candidate on the ballot. But he says leadership skills he's gained in the military and experience on about two dozen trials with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office have prepared him for the role. 51-year-old Mays sees overlap between her background as an elected utility regulator and the role of attorney general since the Corporation Commission adjudicates consumer protection and fraud cases. Both candidates' platform issues reflect their backgrounds. Mays, who's taught ASU courses on environmental law, says she wants to prosecute out-of-state businesses impacting Arizona's water supply, like one company that's been growing alfalfa here to feed cattle in Saudi Arabia. That is insane at a time when we are experiencing 21 percent cutbacks in our water supplies on the Colorado River. Hamaday refers to his military service when he says he wants to get Arizona's legislature to classify drug cartels as terrorist organizations. For me, I, I want to take a much more aggressive role in securing our southern border to stop the flow of fentanyl, which is plaguing our communities. His border stance echoes that of former President Donald Trump, and Trump's endorsement helped Hamaday beat five opponents for the nomination. Hamaday has also embraced debunked Trump talking points that suggest the 2020 election was rigged. During a debate in which Hamaday accused moderators of bias, Arizona PBS's Ted Simons pressed Hamaday on whether he would have participated in certifying the 2020 vote if he had been AG at the time. So that means you wouldn't not have, have signed at, on as a witness. At, at the time with the issues, I've said, no, I would okay, not have time. Right, Mays was a lifelong Republican. She switched her registration in 2019 over concerns about Trump's influence on the party. She calls Hamaday's rhetoric dangerous. If we elect an attorney general who is not willing to certify a fair and free election like we had in 2020, like we will have in 2022, 
then we will have lost our democracy. In the time since Mays and Hamaday declared their candidacy, the major focus of this race has shifted to abortion. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade this summer, Mark Burnovich, the current AG, has been leading the lawsuit to allow Arizona to enforce a Civil War-era law that bans almost all abortions. Hamaday says he thinks Burnovich's interpretation of the law is correct. Mays thinks it's unenforceable because she says it violates the right to privacy guaranteed by the state constitution. We will never prosecute a doctor, a nurse, a midwife, a doula, uh, or a pharmacist when I'm attorney general. But Hamaday argues it's not realistic to apply Arizona's privacy clause in this case. You know, it's dangerous territory when you pick and choose laws to enforce. He's said simply that he'd follow whatever legislators say on the issue. You know, my job as attorney general is to enforce the law. But it's not just about enforcement. How the state's largest legal office interprets or prioritizes that law and many others will come down to which of two very different candidates voters choose on November 8th. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this story is part of an ongoing series about the candidates and issues on your ballot this fall. For more information, go to voterguide.kjzz.org. In business news, a movement is underway to expand private security officers to Phoenix City Parks. From our downtown bureau, Christina Estes reports on the push by some council members. I really am concerned. Councilwoman Deborah Stark is among four members who want unarmed security officers to patrol eight parks with the highest calls for trespassing and violating rules. She often hears residents complain about public drug use, and last week a dead body was discovered in a park pond. Important to note, the security is not armed. So they're just there as a visual presence to let people know we're here, we're patrolling, we're making sure everyone's safe. Stark had hoped the council would approve $400,000 for private patrols during Wednesday's meeting. But after some members criticized the idea, the issue was tabled until next month. The city has been using private security for three downtown parks for at least a couple years, and Stark says there have been no problems or pushback. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In education news. The race for Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction pits incumbent Democrat Kathy Hoffman against someone who's held the office before, Republican Tom Horn. As Bridget Dowd reports, though both candidates are familiar with the role, they have starkly different philosophies. Kathy Hoffman prides herself on the fact that when she was elected in 2018, it was the first time in more than 20 years that an educator was chosen for the role. I started my career as a preschool teacher, then worked in special education as a speech therapist. And now as a new mom with one term under her belt, she says she feels even more prepared to improve the state's public school system. Her challenger, Republican Tom Horn, served as the state superintendent from 2003 to 2011. Immediately after, he served as Arizona's attorney general. My friends are telling me I'm going backwards, but my response is the big problems are in the schools right now, and that's really what I want to work on. Horn ran for AG again in 2014, but was not re-elected. A three-year investigation found he violated campaign finance laws, but no criminal charges were recommended as he'd already paid $10,000 in fines to the Citizens Clean Elections Commission. A separate inquiry into his first AG campaign found there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. If you ask Horn about it now, he says, I was ultimately vindicated by the courts, but it happened after the election. So the truth sometimes doesn't catch up with the lie quickly enough. 
In his latest bid for superintendent, Horns focused on raising test scores. During a debate on Arizona Horizon, he compared proficiency rates during his terms to those during Hoffman's. The first time I was superintendent, Arizona proficiency rates were over 60 percent for math and over 70 percent for reading. Under Kathy Hoffman, even before COVID, those rates were 42 percent and 42 percent. But Hoffman says that's not a fair comparison because when Horn was in office, they used the Ames test. Which was considered not to be a rigorous assessment. The test has since been replaced by the AZ merit exam. Now we, we hold our students to a, a higher standard. And, and so it's not just can they read, it's what are their comprehension abilities? Are they able to compare and contrast? Horn has also focused his campaign on what he calls restoring discipline in classrooms, criticizing Hoffman's social-emotional learning model. He says it forces teachers to play, quote, dumb games with their students. I had one teacher tell me that she, she told the administrator she really needed a teacher subject. The administrator said, if you don't do social-emotional learning, you're going to get written up. And so she had to have the kids do a race with an egg on the spoons. It's a terrible distraction from academics. Hoffman says social-emotional learning is about building character skills like kindness, empathy, and problem-solving. And some of these skills can be taught through play, which is especially for our youngest kids. So I think when you hear that it's silly games, maybe someone watching isn't realizing the importance of those structured activities where kids learn how to get along with each other. Hoffman's focus on social skills and mental health support carries into her philosophy on school safety. She says schools need more mental health professionals as well as facility upgrades. Horn, on the other hand, advocates for police in schools. I know some Democratic legislators have said, we want to have gun-free schools. Well, if you say I'm a gun-free school, what you're saying is come get me, I'm an easy victim. There's one thing the candidates agree on, that there's still work to be done when it comes to teacher pay and retention. Right now we're losing teachers to our neighboring states, all of whom have higher salaries. We need to spend less money on administration and put more money into teacher salaries. Hoffman has touted her role in creating a teacher residency program as a pipeline for recruitment, but she says there's more to do. I do want to reach out more to the business community to make sure that the message is not just coming from our education leaders, but also from parents and business leaders to continue to keep on demanding that we become competitive in teacher pay and salaries. With such different visions for public education, the state of Arizona public schools could look vastly different depending on which candidate voters choose. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this story is part of our election series. You can find out more at voterguide.kjzz.org. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. Here's another story in the series Made in Arizona from the show. Here's co-host Lauren Gilger. Eileen Martinez prefers a pen and paper to a camera. In fact, when she travels, she often sits down in a place to draw it instead of snapping a picture. She told me she remembers it better that way. Since the pandemic, she's taken that sketching practice and turned it into a business. You might know her Instagram handle, Look, See, Draw, where she's become known for her bright, mood-capturing depictions of some of her favorite places in Phoenix, her hometown. I spoke with her more about it and how it came to be. I've always been interested in art making and drawing. And as a kid, I would always have art supplies on me. Like, I grew up going to church a lot, and I was always bored as a kid. So I would take, like, <laughs> coloring books. And that continued on. And 
when I went to college, one of my classes was having to complete like 10 hours of drawing. Wow. And so I would take my sketchbook to very unconventional places like the gym Mm -hmm. or waiting for a doctor's appointment, stuff like that. And that kind of just became like a custom, a habit of taking that book and kind of documenting everything I saw around me, if possible, especially with travel. It's really great when you travel and you carry a book. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that's just kind of continued and developed into what Luxie draws now today. That's kind of amazing. When did you begin sort of the business side of this and how do you turn it into a business? Well, it's funny because I studied art therapy in school and this is kind of what I always envisioned in my mind to do, but it's very difficult to make it out. I think it is a difficult thing to live off of your artwork. So it actually started just two years ago with the pandemic. I kind of was laid off my job and I was at home twiddling twiddling my thumbs. And then (laughs) so I started going to like drawing on the streets Hmm. and I wasn't selling anything. It was it was a very rough time. I bet. Yeah. Um, I was like broke as a joke (laughs) (laughs) and just didn't really have a lot. But, you know, that didn't really stop me because I just wanted to kind of draw phoenix that was my my project and then i started doing a lot of pop-up markets Mm. and then i didn't really have a lot of work to sell i was like selling prints and postcards so that kind of motivated me to keep making more Mm. and then i started uh a home drawing commission thing Mm -hmm. someone asked for it and i was like oh this is a great idea and people started to see and then Mm -hmm. i kind of do those a lot that's the majority of my work and then i still like to add more Phoenix drawings because I don't want it to just be home commission drawings. You know? Yeah, so. those are like you know you want your childhood home drawn and framed in a picture. This kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So people, I'll go to their house if they don't live too far, and then I take a couple pictures to work off a reference, and then I complete their drawing. I just uh, delivered one before I came here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean that's a creative way, and it sounds like you had to get creative to turn this into something sustainable. Yeah, and I do honestly do question the sustainability part of it Mm. but I think like I have to get creative and I have to like work harder at it to not let it die. So what is it about sort of the Phoenix side of this that you love? Because so much of what you're known for, um, I know on social media and if you see you in markets and stuff, I've seen your work, like it's iconic Phoenix locations and people love to have a piece of that drawn, right? Yeah. How did you come to that? So it's funny because I had one guy at a pop-up mention, like he was very captivated and he said, Oh, like I always see New York and Paris being romanticized in drawings, but yeah. never Phoenix. Yeah. And I thought that was cool because I've never thought of it that way. Well, I grew up here. It was just kind of a way to like memorialize places around the city, hmm. places that I've spent a lot of time. And it's just fun. If possible, I do like um, sitting in front of the spot. Yeah. I do that when the weather does get a little bit cooler. But right now it's still like hell out. So <laughs> it's pretty hot. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about that. It sounds like most of what you do, at least when it's not 110 outside, is is sit in a place and draw what you see. And that's that comes through very clearly in your work, like this sort of live aspect of it, this real life aspect of it. Yeah, to me, whenever I look at those drawings, it's it's funny because it's like you just remember so much when you look at them. You remember like how you were feeling, the weather, sights, smells, whatever. So I, I just really enjoy the whole process of like sitting and slowing down too, especially in like such a fast paced world we live in. It's mm-hmm. just like 
slow down, you look and get weird looks from people like, what is she doing? (laughs) I was going to ask you that. So as you're sitting in a coffee shop or on a street corner on a bench or whatever it is and drawing, you know, a piece of Phoenix or or a little scene that you're seeing, people have to say stuff, right? Like you you must get comments or questions. What is this? Yeah, sometimes it's kind of just like people will kind of do a double take and look back. Other times, like people will stop by and chat. There was a time, it was funny, like the chair part, if I'm traveling like, sometimes I need a place to sit. I don't want to sit on the dirty sidewalk. Yeah. So in Chicago, last year, I wanted to draw the Art Institute. And I went to Chick-fil-A. And I was waiting in line to ask if I could borrow a chair. But it's like a nice chair, like a steel chair. <laughs> and there's a line that I was like, I'm not going to wait. So I just kind of took the chair. <laughs> and, like, there was a security guard. But he didn't really notice me. And I, I was like, I am not. I promise I'm not stealing this. And I sat for, like, two hours on the street. And my took their chair back so it's fine but yeah sometimes the chair or where you sit you have to kind of get creative and it's like oh man i need some place to sit yeah yeah makes a lot of sense okay so i want to talk a little bit more about that moment when you so so you lose your job the pandemic hits and and like a lot of people you're out of work was was art was drawing sort of therapeutic to you in that moment why did you turn to that i mean i had already been doing it i had continued my sketchbook practice and like whenever I was off work I would go to different coffee shops or places and draw mm-hmm. um, so it was always been a passion of mine and I had that intention in my mind I remember like wanting to apply to like one of the markets downtown for first Friday but I wasn't confident enough and I was like no I'll do it later and like three years went by six years went by I was like, mm. I'll do it later and so it kind of just came out of that but it was something that I had been wanting to do for years before that yeah, so it gave you the the excuse to to make this happen. Well, it's like, dude, you you need to do something. Like, come on, <laughs> that's impressive. I think a lot of people would have just you know sat around and watched YouTube, right? Well, I mean, we did a lot of that too. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. So, in your work and in this sort of, you talk about it like a practice, like in almost like a like a like a yoga practice, right? Mm-hmm. Like you sketch where you go. What does that do for you, like, mentally? What does it do for you emotionally? What do you think is important about that? I think it's very calming. It grounds you. Um, I tend to be more on the anxious side a lot of times. So when I'm doing that, I'll just, like, put my headphones on, and it kind of, like, you just forget about everything around you. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very therapeutic. It's calming. Um, I really enjoy it, and I think other people could benefit from it as well if they you know, instilled it in their lives. Yeah, yeah. You said you have a space now, a studio at the Phoenix Children's Museum? Just for the month. I have my work on view until October 16 for Messi Hispano. Um, so I asked if I could put up a desk and a chair. It's this really nice room with, like, a lot of natural light, mm-hmm. and it's very spacious. So I've just kind of been going there daily, and I work. And it's fun to interact with, like, families and just to see kids on the daily. They're, like, full of joy and just happy. <laughs> um, and it's it's just cool to watch, like, people's reactions seeing my drawings. So it's I get to work and kind of, like, mingle with people. So Yeah. So I know you said you were worried about this question, but you have to describe this for us a little bit. Since it's radio and <laughs> what you're doing is very visual, oh, I won't ask you what's your, you know, artistic style. Okay. But describe how you approach a drawing and what ends up on the page. Okay. So I usually start off with a pen or an ink marker. I try not to use pencil. And the reason I do this is because if I do line work with pencil, then I have to go over and it just takes double the time and work. 
So also it's kind of like I'm not able to erase. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you got, that's fun. Um, <laughs> you have to trust yourself a little bit. Yeah, though, right? yeah. But I think with time, like you kind of just go for it. And you don't really not care as much, but you don't focus on, on little things like that. Mm. Um, but my style, I would say it's, it's very colorful. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of different lines and... It's just kind of fun, I yeah. like to think anyways. So you do the pen work and then, is it watercolor? <laughs> the pen work and then I add watercolor or I've been getting into gouache a lot lately, mm. which is similar to watercolor. It's just more matte and you can layer. Yeah. Um, and sometimes marker as well. Yeah. So what's next for you? I mean, this is something, it seems like you're trying to grow. Yeah. Well, I have a couple things in mind, but for products that I'm releasing, I am working on a phoenix coloring book and then a calendar as well and i have some other things in the works but you know gotta keep it on the deal <laughs> you Fair can't enough. let them know your next move you know? we got a little inside <laughs> scoop there i appreciate that all right that is eileen martinez a phoenix artist joining us her instagram handle is look see draw eileen thank you so much for coming on i appreciate it very much thank you for having me lauren and this is the stories you don't want to miss podcast In Fronteras News, Mexican senators have passed a reform that will ban a practice known as conversion therapy and punish those who carry it out. From the Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Blust reports. Senators voted overwhelmingly in favor of modifying federal law to prohibit and criminalize so-called conversion therapy or any practice meant to restrict, change, or suppress a person's sexual orientation or gender expression. Under the reform, practitioners can be fined nearly $10,000 and face up to six years in prison, and the sanctions can be doubled if the harmful practices are imposed on a person who is under 18, elderly, or has a disability. Senator Patricia Mercado initially proposed the reform measures in 2018. She called the practices cruel and inhumane in a speech just after the reform passed. Mexico's lower house of Congress must now vote on the reform. Kendall Blust, KJ's Z News, Hermosillo. And finally, in science news. Studying climate from the past can reveal how trends might develop in the future. As Greg Haney reports, research from the University of Arizona found that secrets from 60 million years ago reveal how sensitive the climate is to carbon dioxide. About 56 million years ago, it is believed volcanoes dumped massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, rapidly heating up the globe. That time period is often used as a parallel for today. During that era, there were no ice caps on the poles and tropical rain belts were much smaller. At the time, carbon dioxide levels rose to about 3,000 parts per million. Right now, they are at about 415 parts per million. U of A professor and study author Jessica Tierney said we're seeing similar effects happening currently, but we're also seeing faster climate change. We're pumping so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we're actually releasing about five times as much carbon dioxide uh, in terms of a rate compared to what was happening in the PETM. Tierney said the faster climate change is, the less likely it is that life will be able to adapt. Greg Haney, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. <laughs>